2: Hi, everyone. It's Jason Kelly in New York with the special edition of Bloomberg Business of Sports. Well, for the latest installment of our Athlete Empire documentary series, I went to visit with Steve Young. He's, of course, the NFL Hall of Famer who's now the co-founder and president of the private equity firm HGGC. Now, this is a guy who made his name with his feet, running away from defenders, running for the end zone, first at BYU and eventually with the San Francisco 49ers, Where he won three Super Bowl rings. And he's still on the move. We met up at his Palo Alto office and then drove, he's got a sweet minivan, down to Levi's Stadium. That's where his old team now plays. He still goes to games there at Levi's, often hosting fellow investors and portfolio companies there in the suite that his firm has. We met up the following week in Arizona. He was hosting a golf tournament for his Forever Young Foundation as well as a conference of CFOs of HGGC companies. And after spending a day chasing him around the golf course, literally chasing him around in golf carts, we finally sat down for a long conversation there in Scottsdale. And that's what you're about to hear. He talks about his playing days and the transition to life after football, as well as what it's taken to build HGGC into a firm that's raised about $7 billion in private equity funds. I hope you enjoy it. To see the full documentary, you can check out Athlete Empire on Bloomberg.com or YouTube. Here's Steve. So let's start by talking about where we are. We're, we're not in Palo Alto where we did spend some time together. We're here in Arizona. And this charity golf tournament... Well, we're in the baller suite. That's we are in the baller <laughs> We are absolutely in the baller suite. And it, it was fascinating yesterday to watch you. And I want to talk about it because it was like all these worlds colliding in some way. So, and this happens three times a year, right? So d- tell me about this. So our
3: foundation historically, that's how we make the budget. And what we do is we trade on signed, you know, footballs and helmets and jerseys and, you know, even different, different sports. And now we're in, we've got a, one of the people that I signed, I basically sign my name cause they, they, you know, we make a deal Like, and then we get stuff to kind of use in the tournament. So it's. It cycles through and that's how we make our budget. And uh, and then in time, my partner, Rich Lawson, finally realized this is an opportunity for our business. And I told you originally, I was like, "Ah, you know, easy. But it's phenomenal. And it's really, now we have our CFO conference at the Phoenix tournament every year. That's kind of how we do it. And so we're half the field or more from our own portfolio and our own firm. And so it's kind of all come together. My firm, our charity, have fundraising efforts and then the f- friends that are around. Like there's a few guys, you know, my oldest friends now is a it's and my dad and my brother. Like it's they're all it's all happens right there as a confluence of all these parts of my life that have found its common center. Yeah. You know? And I I I can't tell you as time has gone on how grateful I am. That's a that's a super cool thing. That can happen in my life, I can roll in, and my whole life comes you know like in a in a circle uh, in one day
2: well, exactly, I mean, I felt like I was living a this is your life with you, like chasing you around a golf course yesterday because as you say, there are all these different touch points. How do you approach a day like that? I mean how do you get because you've uh, got, got a clipboard you're like eating on the I go. Mean, we've
3: been at it a long time, yeah so for me it's it's a it's a fun day to make all the associations but they're they're most of them are old associations yeah you know what i mean and so uh it's like going to the super bowl it's it's a in many ways it's a convention yeah. right of the people that i don't see maybe once a year and uh it's all kind of quick close and kind of getting around and i i used to play i used to just play with one group and just you know just play and i finally realized that you know again Steve, people come, they want to, we need to take the picture, we need to, and so part of it's a capitulation, I'm like, okay, let's take the picture, you know, but then, like most things, I realize it's good, like, it's actually things I want to do, and things that I enjoy, and so, you, you, luckily, you live long enough, that's the blessing of living a little longer, is you, you get to see the screw-ups of how you looked at things, and how much there's benefit, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an overall benefit to, to my life, in kind of the rigor of the day, yeah, right. I like I, I now look, f- I, I see it as a huge opportunity more than anything.
2: And to be fair, you did you did get in a few holes at the end of the
3: you, Well, you, so that's you made, it's it, like, how fast can we go? Because <laughs> you know, through the last couple of years, Keith Clearwater, I have a I have a love for golf, like a lot of people. I a, it really is a passion. I love golf. I love thinking about it. I just don't play it very often. But I believe that if you love golf and you don't play very often, you can get better kind of in your backyard. That's my theory. And it has proven untrue. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's been very frustrating because I want to prove that you do not have to go play a lot to get better. And uh, so Keith's my check-in. You know, I was like, because he's the guy that uh, uh, he makes the most sense to me. And when you, talk, when you talk about golf and what you, these are the things you need to work on. I get a thousand tips, you know, from everyone. Uh, but the thing that, and so when I get around him, I'm like, where's Keith? I got to get to him so he can give me a couple of tips.
2: So you mentioned seeing your dad yesterday, which for me, at least having, you know, learned a lot about you and, and talked to, to you a little bit. I mean, this seminal guy, seminal person in your life and in, in many ways, and you talk a lot. You talk in your book. I heard you talk to the CFOs about, you know, these critical moments in your life and, and not just moments, but sort of through lines yeah. and specifically what's the plan. And, and, and when you think about yourself as a business person, I wonder how you sort of factor that in. And, and, and I have to say for me, at least like senior dad evoked a lot of that Yeah. for, for me. And I wonder if it does for you as well. I think like most people,
3: you don't appreciate it when it's happening. Growing up and all the things that your dad or mom do for you or any parent or parent person or guardian, it doesn't matter. It's like, it's just the relationship. Um, when you're, you know, what is it? Mark Twain, the youth is wasted on the young. I mean, you're, 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 you're kind of don't, you're not built to appreciate the way that now it's time gone on, has gone on. And I look back and reflect on the impact and you go, I mean, it's like the threads are thick. And, the, and how I look at the world, I didn't realize how informed it was by how my dad looked at the world. And, and then you get older and you're like, my gosh, that's amazing how, you know, how much that happens. And I, I think that's another thing to getting a little bit more age is an appreciation for those things and actually having to be able to tie them all together for yourself. And that's what's happened in the last, really in 10, 15 years, is just that appreciation for how thick that is and how beneficial it's been in my life. Mm-hmm. Like, just as a direction. You know, you, you'd be able to say, you know, you wake up every day, and you know, a new day, what direction are you headed? And so much of which direction I headed every day was really informed by how my parents thought about how to look at every day. And, uh, and that's where, the you know, the great gratitude comes from. And he's, not, he's a man of few words. I don't know if you got a chance to talk to him. It's like not like he's going to, you know. But he's his... He's as fun and happy as he's been in a long time because he's healthy and and uh, you know his nickname is Grit and probably not because he but when you get him he's like anybody when you get him going he's the funniest guy alive
2: but uh, but as a but a super intense but the plan the becomes plan. formative in, in in many ways and not just for football and in many ways almost in spite of football, like it it, it transcends in me. Tell me about that.
3: My career in private equity is solely on the back of his constant pecking at me around football is a dream, what's the plan? And because I constantly thought about that, I was in a position, because how, I mean, we've talked a little bit about how the transition, I give you a couple of very important kind of things that happen. But fundamentally, without the law degree, I wouldn't have been able to get the opportunity to get into direct investing. Now, did I have the MBA that everyone had out of Harvard? Did I do the four years of consulting or banking? And you know, no. But I think I was given the opportunity um, because I had that in my pocket, and I wouldn't have. And I wouldn't have gone to law school if my dad had not had driven it in my head that. You better have a plan because right. I don't care if and what's amazing to me, Jason is that he was actually i mean he was right, I played eighteen seasons you know there's a few that have played more Tom Brady's now twenty three but there was a couple guys that got to twenty, but I got as many as maybe anyone who ever played, and I still did have half of my life that I wanted to be productive, and what could you do with another half of a life and and I Without him pecking away at I me, mean, I would have just winged it, you know? And uh, having a thought, and that's why I want to pay it forward to future generations to just give them, what's the plan? Yeah. You know what I mean? To kind of pay forward, What what is your plan? And I don't care how long you play. If you think you're going to play for 18 years, fine. you still got another half of your life. What are you going to do? And just to have that people, that germinating in guys' minds, um... It was super valuable to me, valuable to me, and I would love it to think if you pay for it to other people.
2: And and so tell me about, you know, and, and you talked to the CFOs about this, this notion of, all right, so you had a law degree, but that opens up a, a lot of possibilities. You do have this conflation of events a little bit in the sense that, and we talked about this in the way to leave Valley, stadium. Right? You're in Silicon Valley, so all these things are kind of germinating, but that doesn't necessarily mean... It happens. It happens. Right. And so what what's the moment or, or, or what's the process by which you become an investor?
3: You know, the truth is, if you think about the entrepreneurship that was born out of the locker room to find those relationships up and down Sand Hill and to think about, OK, what do I have? What are my assets? And what can I, tr- what can I trade on to kind of figure out ways to... And entrepreneurial spirit to start Northgate Capital with Brent Jones and Tommy Vardell to... To start a business, found with uh, some buddies from school, from college, and find investors, sophisticated institutional investors. Like you look back and then like, how did you get the private equity? Well, you know, it was the it was that you know you you started doing you know what you did private equity on the other side, and I think that's the only way uh, the transition happened is that. You're looking back at being on the board at Power Bar and being in the locker room trying to talk about those relationships and learning, getting to be friends with Doug Leone at Sequoia and seeing the deals and how they thought about the world and being an investor in Bain and watching Bain go from the you know from the very beginning to this uh, you know stratospheric rise and the personalities and what that the rigor of it, I got that insight over time while I was while I was playing in many ways. So, um, and that's why I said you know Larry Fitzgerald is famously not famously, but to me famously, come ask me all the time, Steve, tell me more, tell me, tell me. Because he, he's thinking about it. And, th- and I, I tell Larry, because you're asking the questions, you're going to find a way through it. And he now is. I just saw him on, in the newspaper. He announced a huge hotel that he's building with the guys that, uh, the, the great uh, restaurateur and others. That, like he's, he's figuring it out. And like this, I encourage players to just keep asking
2: questions. And you know, because there were, people should be worried about the future. It's something to be worried about. And so when you get into to private equity and you start, you know, Northgate comes along, it, then you start building and and different parts of your life start start coming together um, and then coming apart. Right, <laughs> so, right. so tell me about those early days of what becomes HGGC. So
3: really, it's fundamentally Bob Gay, Who had been a close friend of mine, did a lot of philanthropy together. He I mean, he you think about the OGs of private equity. You could he's in there with Mitt Romney and Building Bain. I mean, that the you know, he was the third guy in at Bain. And so he had deep private equity experience. And so and when I had started Northgate Capital, and I had started found, me start. Don't overstate it, but i am just been involved in these kind of things, uh, and and then I made the association with Rich. And Rich to me was very important because he was the traditional banker, the traditional private equity kind of uh, uh, heritage. We we were connected and partners at that point, and Bob wanted you know was encouraged to start and help start Soaring and Capital, and so that. It just seemed like an almost a natural thing to step into those shoes and be a founder in a private equity firm. And that is that's the place where in private equity, that's the spot where it, you know, you can do a lot of different things. But to get to actually get in from the ground floor in a private equity firm. Uh, and in many ways, you know, it cut my teeth on a small 250 million dollar fund. And so I, that was perfect, too, because, you know, <laughs> you can't or stretch yourself. And so it, you know, if you look, it was without, it's like idiot savant, right? Like things that led to each other, but were, nat- were natural kind of outcroppings. And so getting into direct investing felt like, you know, people say, so how do I do that? <laughs> like, it seems, you know, disjointed, but it's actually step by step in right. some ways. Right. Right. And uh, and then how to led to HGGC was, You know, uh, we invested very successfully at First Fund at Sorenson Capital. And my other two partners, Ron Mika and Fraser Bullock, great guys, wanted to stay in in Utah and do this geographic kind of Intermountain West, $250 million privately firm. And Rich and I, because of relationships that we kind of emerged out of my previous life and other things that happened, like we have kind of grander visions, and Bob... Had gone to gone to Africa for church service for three years, left Bain to do it, and now had to decide whether to come back. And Bain had grown in those three years, 2004, 2007, are the, you know, the big years of growth for. The Bain. go-go and So years. Bu- in 2007, he's coming back to a Bain that's now buying Pizza Hut and Burger King, and 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 the science, and we knew that he loved the art, right? The middle market, this you know, kind of down with the operators and. And so, Rich and I had this idea, let's go pitch him to come back and start his own firm. And so, Rich and I flew over to Ghana, Africa, and bounced around in the car and as he was going to visit missionaries and came up with the idea, and he, he did it. And, uh, and that was, you know, so or, Huntsman gave global capital, and then when John Huntsman, it's a long story of how he didn't get over, But uh, and then Bob ended up going to full-time church service in 2011. So then, in 2012, Rich and I found ourselves found ourselves kind of without the name partners, and trying to now recreate Huntsman Global Capital into HGGC. So it's a it's an evolving over period of time. But to me, it makes total sense. To someone on the outside, it's like, so what? How do? You, good luck trying to connect those dots. I guess that's your job. Well, and and in that
2: in that moment, I mean, I do wonder the two named partners are no longer. Part of it. You obviously have a name.
3: Why didn't you name it Young Capital or whatever? Right. I mean, I, 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 I well, first of all, I was in, you know, Bob never wanted to use his name. So, you know, that was that was on my mind as well. But I also, I wasn't a great marketer. I mean, there's Mar. you know, I've run it. There's players that are, Deion Sanders is a genius marketer. When he played for the 49ers, I got to watch it firsthand. And, talk about an athlete i mean he could he could go from the field be a great locker room teammate and then be a great marketer and he could actually put on those different shoes and i was i'm not that talented i'm not an i'm not a genius marketer if i was maybe i would have done something different and so i've in some ways um i've held maybe maybe there's things i could have done that would have made it even Easier or better or whatever. I just, uh, my my mind doesn't work that way.
2: You also, and I don't think this is a stretch, had some hesitation about being ex-football player investor. You wanted to be an investor. Is that
3: fair? That's very fair. And I think, I don't know how to say this the right way, but the more famous you are as a player, the more accomplished you are, the more I thought the difficulty would have to actually have people take you seriously. Like you can play a little bit and then transition and one goes, oh yeah, he used to play, you know, he was played at Harvard and then he played at, uh, you know, a couple seasons with the, you know, the Browns and, you know, that that's fine. But a Hall of Fame football player now wanting to be in a really intense environment in and in an industry that's, you know, kind of like in some ways, the rigor of football. I maybe overplayed it, I can I can admit that at this point, but if you're gonna, in my mind, if you're gonna start from the beginning and be a founder and kind of claw it out from the beginning, you can't bring that with you. That's gonna be, a, it's gonna be every day. Every time you walk in a room, it's gonna be part of it. The worst thing you can do is bring it with you, right? And so I think there is a concerted effort and maybe over effort to separate the two. And I've learned how to become comfortable with both. And I think that's a cool place. And, but you, you love to psychoanalyze, Jason. You're like, you can't help it. You're like, yeah, let me ferret through it. Let me find out exactly where this is coming from. And I think that you've hit a little bit of a vein that I purposely was not comfortable because my level of fame was going to already be in the room the le- what's worse is the guy who's has it uses it as a as a stick you know and i always my my another dad in my analogy my dad is a stick and a tool like you know weapon and a tool and i wanted my fame to be a tool i didn't want it to be a weapon and it's so easy to weaponize right you can bring it in and just slay the room and just tell everyone to You know, and that's not the way I wanted to do it. I wanted to be, and it's hard because it, because it comes with you no matter what. Inevitably the conversation, look, I just, I've been what out for 22 years and I go in to talk to our CFOs in our portfolio. And what do I do? I talk about football. So I'm, I'm guilty of it as well, but you can't, the lessons are true and and, and they, and they, and they resonate. And so I've figured out how to. Again, like most things in my life have become integrated, but it all works now. Yeah. But certainly when I started, I held myself back in some ways because I was so worried about being taken seriously.
1: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.
2: So in terms of, you know, these worlds really integrating, yeah. it was really fascinating to hear you talk to the CFOs. First of all, I would love to know how you approach that because I saw you on the side, you sort of jotted down a couple of things, and then you just like, you were off. And I know it's not a canned speech. So there's there are certain elements there that you've clearly been thinking about, mm in terms of metaphors and analogies and connections. Yeah. How do how do you approach something like that?
3: You know, I've done a lot of speaking and it gives me opportunities to kind of formulate themes in my head and I didn't realize how much those themes kind of rubbed off on the firm. And I and I realized over time that they weren't just you know, something to say, they actually had some really important meanings. And so I think over time, it doesn't, I'd written down a couple of things. I actually didn't, I I stopped where I started to write. I stopped because I'd spent so much time talking about something I didn't really intend to. But I also, when I got started talking about what a partner is and what these guys as CFOs think about every day in retention and how do we keep people in this environment? How do we make sure that You know, we have a place that, you know, people are happy in, and and that just got me started on what what made my previous experience with the 49ers, what was unique and different about them and where we made great, you know, where we led and where we failed, you know, so that, and then how to think about what is, you know, this idea of creative tension I've been thinking about a a lot lately because... People shy away from tension. It's like, oh, tension, thats that uh, seems very tense. We need to move away, because we need to be, you know, everything's copacetic and happy and bubbly. And it's like, no. But there's a place where it gets toxic, and that's athletic in itself, to figure out where that line is. But having those guys think about and empower them as they sit in unique spots to mold a business That needs to retain people some of these things to me are vital ways to again which way do i face i waste you know and how do i approach each day it gives them some fundamental kind of to me truth principles and i probably should write them all down and have them all collated and in a little thing and i can just whiff through and kind of pull them out um that'll be another project for the future (laughs) but uh hopefully we tape some of this stuff over the years because i it does build on itself, and uh, the guys that have been around my shop for a long time, I really work hard to come up with new stuff because they're just so bored of seeing. You know, oh my gosh, if he tells that accountability story again, I'm going to go crazy. So even today, I, like couldn't, I couldn't bring it. For I had it written down. I was like, I just can't do
2: it.
0: Yeah.
3: Because I see Bill Conrad and like Bill just go, oh, I can't do it again. You know, and Les would say, look, there's six, there's eight new people. Right. You, you tell them, you know, and I'm like, I I worry about the guy that's heard it three times. So. Along those lines,
2: I want to talk about what you have described and Rich has described as this different approach to to private equity. I know enough to be dangerous about about the business. And this is, if not revolutionary, and again, I'll I'll do the job of drawing the metaphors. Yeah, good luck
3: making the case, but go ahead. It's worth making, I think.
2: So I think that, interestingly— as a quarterback, you approach the game differently. Left-handed, scrambling when
3: nobody was doing when it, when
2: nobody was doing it, and you were specifically told not to. Similarly, you're going into to private equity with a very different playbook, yeah. And and one might argue, radically different. Why and how does that actually get? Executed Because there's a lot of what a lot of people talk about it's doing just, it's, things differently. It's,
3: it's softer. You know, it's not something you can grab. You right. can, two, two things. First of all, I I realized pretty dramatically that football was unique in that there's so many guys and you needed it. I think, did I tell you the story about Steve Covey? I, let me just boil it down. One of the conversations, I, I was on a plane with him in a very dark part of my career, just happened to sit next to him. He's the seven habits guy. Yeah. And I'd never really chatted with him before in my life. I knew of him and told him how terrible it all was going and how hard it was and how much I wish I would have played golf, you know. And then it would just, I play, I win or I lose, and I don't have anyone to blame. Football is just too many guys. And you have to kind of gather everybody, and just, some are disinterested and some are less interested than others. And, you know, and, and uh, I just, I, I remember moaning and complaining about it. And he had something to say that just super important. It informs your question. He said that it's been scientifically proven, Steve, that the most human beings that can work efficiently together is seven. And when you add the eighth person, it geometrically devolves. Ninth even more, so it gets worse. And so you get to the 11th person, it's just chaos. And I remember looking at him like, I thank you. For proving my point, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you gave me this little tidbit because it's been so frustrating. And then he came with a a hammer. He said, but what you're missing is, and why I'm inspired to write my books and to do everything else is that by definition, when you have too many people and you can find efficiency or success or innovation or anything else, it's magical. Because it makes no sense. It's devolved in the number of humans that are in the, in the room, scientifically does not make sense that you could work together. And that and when you do against science, there's magic. And it just so resonated with me. That's so true. Some of the greatest moments of my life are when 50 guys have one, done something together, and you look at each other like, oh, I can't believe what that feels like. And there is magic in it. And I think What resonated with me in private equity, and I got to give Bob Gay credit because he loved the middle market. He loved the operators. He loved the people. He didn't, you know, he was a great underwriter and he loved the science because you have to. And I say, everyone can, you know, science should be a commodity. Everyone's great at the science, but it's the layer of art and the people. And so when we came together with Rich, that was, and Greg, that was fundamental to how we saw the business. And that resonated with me back with, you know, the magic, like that is the magic of football. And this is very, very much the same kind of rigor and that there's magic in the people. And if you could leave the hubris behind, but that says, I love that business, but it would be so much better if I ran it, right? And that might be true. And there's plenty of money made that way. But to me, the more profitable way to do it not just in returns, but in kind of legacy, in abundance in a spirit, I don't want to be too weird, but like in a, is to approach it, kind of looking at the person across the table as your strategic partner. And in that, it's complex. It's the person across the table has never had a partner. They hate the process. The reason why they started their business is because they never wanted a partner, and here they are at the table that they don't really want to be at. And here you are across the table, trying to convince fundamentally that no, you you really do want a partner. And then we get into conversations around control, and that's my whole life. For my my whole life, it's control. Like control is how you get across the you know, metaphorically across the goal line. Like how do you sp- parse control, and how do you work with each individual in a unique way? I can yell at John Taylor. I don't yell at Jerry Rice. You know, I can. I have to talk to Brent Jones in a certain way. I got to, and so all those aspects are just one-to-one in private equity. And to me, private equity at its best is art and at its best and most profitable to, it's in this context of people first and art first. And I think that we, in, we raised money in 2007 on that. And I remember LPs kind of, Glazing over, looking at the returns of both of our firm funds, and saying, "Okay, yeah, fine, fine, fine," you know, let's show me the numbers. Show me the numbers. Yeah. I, I think maybe it would be profitable to talk some LPs. But well, look, I told them, a, a, and two, we said in two thousand eight, there's a denominator of businesses that want to transact in this kind of what we describe this artful way. Believe us, we were pretty sure that that was the case, and it was the case. Fifteen years later, what? tenfold of businesses that want to transact when they want to see someone across the table that can take care of the legacy, take care of the the, the 15 or 20 things that might be as important as value. Because everyone's like, what's the price? But all of a sudden, there's fifteen other things that I'm, I'm very concerned about that I need to make sure that you and I are on the same page. And so the, the dominator businesses that want to transact this way is really, at this point, most everybody, mm-hmm. so that's why everyone's a partnership investor now, right? Because you have to be, because right. that's what everyone's looking for. And I tell everyone, well, that's great. You rent there. I live here. This is all we do. And foundationally, I remember there was a guy, a good friend, ran a, a famous private equity firm nearby, and he said, "Your culture. I mean, I'm, you guys over, really, you know, because we we're kind of a not an unknown quality quantity, but we we're really you know, kind of under the radar." And as they got to know us, I it's like, your culture is what I want our firm to be like. Well, what do you do? What do you, how do you do it? I said, well, the first thing you got to do is your founders need to put all of their relationships in the middle and no one owns anything. And you don't fight over those relationships. They're, they're the firms. <laughs> in the 15 seconds, he's like, yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> he's so, like, oh, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> so it's like you, the culture has to be kind of in the roots. Yeah. And that resonates with people, and I think that that's what we're, you know, in our shop we believe it. It's become it's not a religion, but it's it's a it's a culture that everyone's invested in, and we 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 mean it. And I think it goes back to my to my roots as well, and it resonates with me. That's for sure.
2: And so that that ethos manifests itself, I think, in interesting ways. And and I spent some time with Brian from Integrity, the CEO of Integrity, yesterday. And he told me a story that that I want to test out on you, and I want to see if you remember it the the same way, which was you guys were looking to buy the company. It it was an auction situation, and so it it was competitive. And 19 bids. 19. And we were not the highest price. Right. He he mentioned that. He did. All right. Just details. Yeah, exactly. Data. Exactly. But he said that he remembers this very clearly, that the two of you had a conversation. And you were asking him about his life, you were asking him about his schedule, and he was talking about how I much he was traveling. Yeah. And that you said to him, I wanna do this deal, but if we're gonna do it, I need you to spend two weeks at home, not on the road. True story? <laughs> it's a true story.
3: And I, I, um, I believed in this athleticism, this idea that you could be emotionally athletic is super important. And I encourage people to not be, you know, everyone can play one key on the piano and they play great, but you gotta be able to play a lot of keys. And the most healthy companies are the guys that, and the women that can, you know, play the symphony. And that means at home, that means efficiency on travel, like boondoggles and everything else, like what, what really matters? And making them the space for what, I don't know, I'm not saying what, what matters to me what matters to you, but now I know what matters to you is similar to what matters to me, make it matter. And, you know, if you're gonna take a week trip, make it two days. Get the same done, but get home. I don't know. I don't know if that's that dramatic to success, but it certainly always has resonated with me and probably seems like it resonated with him, which is cool.
2: What's interesting as you think about integrity is, this is a business that again keep me honest becomes an integral part of your portfolio i mean arguably could be well, everyone has
3: everyone has those fund returners right. that you don't you don't you didn't expect we loved integrity from the beginning in norfolk nebraska three partners uh, my dad would love it. Mike, Tom, and Brian, you know, just, you know, Jim, Tom, Steve, you know, not Legrand. <laughs> and uh, uh, that's a reference to my family. I don't know, probably, probably. But anyway, it was, a, but it had to grow and it had, it was really an M&A story. Like we're going to go out and find others to kind of, you'll be the platform and we'll bring others in. And it was slow. It took time. We had to have a shared services where the point is that you'd have a, a group in back that would create this, you know, uh, ability to do the back office accounting and HR and everything else in a you know, kind of centralized place. And that would be in a more efficient pro- process as we brought new, new people on. And it took time, more time than we thought. And there was a moment when it's like, I don't know, is this working? You know? And how's is Brian? You know, And I think having those referendums and deciding and, and re-underwriting again and saying no, he is. And yes, this is the way is super cool now when you know they're going to be I mean the returns are you know they return the fund and more with one, just one investment off of a faith and a relationship really more than anything and a belief in each other right. and so now that we're on the other side of that and now we we used to be they were the moon to our earth and now we're the earth to the universe to them like we're this small that's how big they've gotten and that, we, you know, anything like that, when you had those fundamental conversations on direction and which way we're gonna go and decisions that you made together, partner, and went through the rigor. I look, I, I my previous life, it was amazing. You know, throwing Jerry Rice a touchdown or Brent Jones, like it was a you know, in front of 80,000 people and winning games, like there's nothing like it. But you talk about that relationship and how that was forged and everything. It's not 80,000 people watching it, but it, it feels familiar in how fundamental foundational it is to the experience and how like amazing it is. And I think that's why there is magic in private equity.
2: Integrity is also an interesting example of something notable and again, somewhat radical that you do around compensation and ownership and something that and and help me with this, you know, you've extended that idea even into your own firm in a in a different way. So right, that's right. walk me through that.
3: So Brian had the idea that he had you know, 3,000 employees at the time, and you know what? The equity owners of the business, the people that have the stock, are making incredible amounts of money, but the employees are getting paid their salaries. What if we gave them stock in the business so that they, as the business grew, they weren't just getting their salary, they were actually had stock that would get more valuable. And I was like, that I love, right? Shared, you know, common experiences, right? Same of the stuff that I've always talked about in football and the idea of building partnership. Build partners with your employees. Not just be paid mercenaries. I'm overstating it, but not just paid. But they're actually owners of the business. And I love that concept. And he did that for 3,000 people. I'm I'm in the 3,000 range. And, you know, and and then three or four years later, when the new, you know, next transaction came by, that had turned into just an astronomical return for the employees. And he did that as a private business. And I thought, that's, that's a way to solve for a lot of the ills of the corporate world and how people see the world as building equity inside the employee base. I think that's, I don't know, I I'm not new. Certainly, you know, not revolutionary, but actually doing it when you don't have to, when you're not forced to, there's magic in that. And I loved that. And I think we've done it in our firm as well, and kind of more distributed partnership and trying to give equity out. Ownership, not just held by two people. Um, because what that does is it allows for generational mindset. It's not just waiting for Two founders to you know shove off and then uh, you know we'll all we'll fight over the remains. It's like it builds value in the system. that's ongoing, and you can talk about. And and to me that was it goes. Uh, it's funny, it goes back to Bill Walsh. He took, I watched him do it in the late 80s. He filmed, there was a guy with a camera, the old school, you know, big thing of, on his back, and he'd follow Bill around everywhere, filming Bill as he spoke to the team, went out on the practice field, installed the offense in the lunchroom. And I kept asking, what, what is this, like a museum they're doing, or what are they doing, a special documentary? Like, no one knew. Well, what it was, was that he was creating a physical toolkit of video-based, audio-based of all his speeches, and all of his playbooks and all of his installations everything paper based that he had and essentially wrapping it all up as a toolkit to do what at the height of his career he was world famous he was Bill Walsh was three super bowls in and you know he was the it was at the, the nadir of his of his fame he was doing this to hand it to his assistant coaches that he wanted to go have success in the league He wanted his minority coaches, especially, before the Rooney Rule, to give this toolkit. Because he knew if he gave it to them, (laughs) they'd have success. Who takes all their secrets, all the things that makes them great at the height of their greatness, three or four generations ahead of everybody else in the league, and wraps it up and hands it to the people who are leaving to go coach other places, and then says to them, you know what, I'll see you in the championship game. Because he knows with my toolkit, you're going to be competing back against me. And it happened. And so to me, that is a... Look, I'm not telling everyone should give away their proprietary information, but there's a spirit to legacy. There's a spirit to... And so I watched it. I watched the guy at the height of his... And I said to him, Bill, why would you do that? He said, Steve, we've got to give opportunity. I want these men to succeed and I thought, that's a heck of a statement because of course you do. But who does the actual work to give them the opportunity to go succeed and giving away what you own that is most valuable? That is Is that great business? You can make an argument that maybe that is the great business that we need to be in. And so those are, like when you ask me what I'm thinking about, most is because I witnessed it. And I've seen this happen and I I know it it's an abundant way to look at the world. And I can tell you that 30 years later in the NFL, as I go around on Monday nights and see the teams and see the coaching staffs, that Bill Walsh, and he doesn't get nearly the credit, he is the NFL. His coaching tree is, is the NFL. You name a team and you name that toolkit. That toolkit has traveled around now and been built onto so that today's offenses, if Bill was alive today and he saw the offenses today, the first thing he'd say is, why didn't I think of that? That is amazing. But the second thing that I'd want him to know is they built it off of you. what you did. Exactly what the West Coast offense is, is everywhere in the league. So what is the spirit of what he did? It's legacy. It's abundant. It's, it's, it, it's like a headwaters. And so I, I, there's a way to make returns. There's a way to have proprietary knowledge and not give it away. There's a way to, but there's a spirit. And I think what you're describing with Brian and what we've tried to do is a spirit of abundance that I learned from Bill Walsh. And what better way to honor something that was formative and fund- foundational to how I see the world than to have this new, wonderful career in private equity and, and have it informed. By-
1: the countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
3: This amazing, cool stuff that happened that would have no place in private equity otherwise. So it's like, right. I can... I can bring it in, and it's so far so good.
2: So then roll it back to something that I know is very much front of mind for you in terms of paying it forward, in terms of legacy, in terms of playbook, which is seeing a generation of athletes coming up, seeing athletes who turn professional and get taken advantage of, whose money is squandered, who get who who make mistakes. You've seen it. Other athletes have seen it, athletes who work with you like Jr. Bryant have seen it and experienced it. Yeah. What do you do about that?
3: We got to pay it forward. We've got a the same thing built in. We need to package up all of our experiences and that's my job. My next job is to get develop a repository of all the experiences of people who have transitioned. And by definition, if you've retired from the game, you've transitioned. Doesn't mean it was successful, doesn't mean it wasn't a mess, but the stories need to be told and there needs to be a repository for those stories to be drawn from for people who need to be thinking about it. And then you gotta go out to the rookies who have stars in their eyes, who believe it's gonna go on forever, that the money just flows in like a, you know uh, off a waterfall. And the f- financial literacy that they have versus the money that they own is a huge Grand Canyon. That just is where people just collapse into, and so we owe it from our own experiences to 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 bring that forward. And I, I, it's it's you know, okay, young, go get it done. Well, that's in my head. I got to get it done. But to have, you know, I had a funny story. Uh, I was unfortunately at a funeral. One of our coaches recently uh, tragically was run over uh, on a bike, and uh, and at the at the funeral was one of my old tackles. Kirk Scrafford. He played for a number of years, but no one, you like, the annals of the NFL, you'd be like, oh, Kirk Scrafford from Montana. And so, you know, I'm like, Kirk, what what are you doing? He goes, well, you know, in this drawl, you know, I'm living in Costa Rica, you know, and he tells a story about starting ice cream stores and how that was the transition. And uh, immediately I said to myself, that story needs to be told for, for future generations so that someone can say, I I do I is that a franchise? How do I do that? And they can hear from him and his story. There are untold numbers of people who have transitioned. It's awful for everyone. Jason, Tom Brady's experienced it, right? He he had three weeks of it. Like, whoa! <laughs> you know, no! It's a, it's a it's it's a brutal experience. But it needs to be thought about, it needs to be prepared for and the best that you can. And then while you're playing, the financial literacy, while you're essentially financially illiterate, but yet making lots of money, we need to support so that it's it's not wasted. It can't be wasted. And this is ongoing. I've seen Goldman Sachs trying to do something. I see Steph Curry doing it with Goal. I see people out there. Andre Iguodala is doing some cool stuff. Everybody's thinking about it. And we need to figure out a you know a kind of consolidated way to bring this forward for, for athletes, especially with NILs now. These kids in high school are now making... Half a million dollars. I mean, woohoo, great. But this should be foundational to their future. How do we figure out for them to have to empower them to, to own that? Uh, good luck telling an 18 year old to like, get focused, you know? <laughs> financial <laughs> literacy, you know, it's like, savings, savings,
2: <laughs> triple A insured bonds. <laughs> and so as you think back to, you know, sort of choosing. Private equity. I, I just want to go back to that for a second, I, only because you've now done this longer longer than you than you played the game. You're you're quick to point that out. Is private equity what you thought it would be? I mean, it's dare I say, very financially rewarding. It, it is a you well, know it is, it, is it a
3: yeah it, is it what it, what you thought it would yeah. be? In, in important ways yes in that if playing. Playing in the NFL and trying to be good or great, it takes everything. You just pour yourself into it. You can't replicate it. You can try and you can waste your time and you can actually create more problems for yourself in trying to replicate what you had in the NFL. But the challenges for me in private equity are seem similar of what it takes and what it what the challenges and facing those challenges is, is energizing. And, and um, so in that way, personally, just the job and the business and what success is and how rare it is, is similar. It feels similar. And I think that's, that relationship is valuable to me because I, I find the same kind of satisfaction in doing the job well and not well. You know, like if, failings and successes, like just like my previous life, right? And so that part, uh, yes. Um, whenever you talk about money, it, it can devolve quickly as far as trying to show that, uh, you know, import. Um, and I think that seeing and empowering the Brian Adams of the world I find that that's worthy like that's private equity, you know That's a situation where private equity is super cool super valuable super abundant like we created and helped this thing that now it's going to employ 50,000 people, you know No, how do you look at it and then being run by people that have a spirit of? You know paying it forward and you know, that's the power and I told Brian you know, my why of private equity is kind of embodied in him and Brandy Jacobs and a number of the uh, men and women, uh, Kate Bolseth at help. That's my why, right? Because to empower, like I can't change the world, but I think those, they can. And so in that way, empowering them to do that while making return for, like, it's like it's a multifaceted endeavor. But while doing that, I, you can change the world and I want, and I would back you. I would, there's a lot of people that are in powerful positions today that I would not follow, that I would wish that they were off the stage. But there are people that in private equity you can back that I hope that they go big. I I would follow you anywhere. And I think that there's something, you know, did it, did it, has it fulfilled everything? No, there's failings and foibles of private equity and it has a black eye for a particular purpose.
2: Uh, but I think we're missing the potential of it too. So as you think about what's next, I mean, I watch you, I've watched you over the past few days, you are on the go. Like what's next, what's next, what's next? So I'm going to pointedly ask you that. What's next? You built this firm, you talked about wanting to give back, but I know because I've read it and heard it, people talk to you about running for office. I know people talk to you in this day and age about, owning a sports team, you, you've, you're, you're more embracing the, the world of sports now. So how do you think about those types of future opportunities?
3: Well, it's through the lens of what Barb will, you know, put up with. (laughs) So, you know, that's number one. Uh, I think, um, look, this is my future here. This is my, you know, this is my career. This is what I want to do. People have you know, the younger guys in the firm are probably can't help it, but say, "Well, so, when's he?" You know, and I told him as we tried to make this transition to a distributed partnership, one of the questions that does not is not going to be answered is what I'm going to do, because right now I have more energy than I've ever had about doing it. So, if you wanted like a succession speech or conversation, it's not happening. So that's what's next is that's not happening. Like I don't know what's next, but it's not. Uh, how to transition into something else? Like, uh, um, I am, I am about what we talked about—about about figuring out ways to empower players. It goes to mental health. It goes to all these kinds of ideas that I have. I, I you know, for for 20 years, I've gotten every safety, I, any idea of making the football safer. I've seen the tr- the the helmet. I've seen the mouth guard. I've seen the tracking. I've seen the data. I've seen um, the eye, you know, there's a eye tracking. There's phenomenal technology where you can put a goggles on. They'll track your eye, your your pupil, and tell you whether you had sleep deprivation, whether you're you had a head injury, whether your neck is hurt, whatever it is. It's amazing. And doing 30, 60 seconds, trying to get the NFL to adopt this because it needs to be on the sideline. It needs to, in many ways, replace the neurosurgeon who's subjective. Like we need an objective test on the sideline. So it's like those kinds of things. Like how can I? what we just described and all these ideas I had, it's like, you know, I don't even really remember the old movie Night Shift with Henry Winkler and, uh, you know, who was it? It was, um, uh, and he said he had, a, he had a tape recorder, you know, he's like, he's the idea guy. You know, he's like, I know, well, we're going to feed mayonnaise to tuna fish. That's what we'll do, you know? It's like, you know, I always laughed about that. But there are things that I I've got in my mind that we need to get done. And so maybe that's next. And if there was a, in the future, a really functioning repository of of wealth of stories that can help younger players be more empowered with their lives, that would be super cool. So maybe that's next.
2: I do want to push you just a little bit on the ownership question, though, because we have seen this turnover. Yeah. And you know, you talked with the CFOs about this notion of seeing what ownership could be generations ahead of where we are now in terms of that partnership between owners and players. Fair enough. You think a lot about partnership in in many ways. I have to think in the back of your mind, you think, could I really marry these worlds?
3: Look, every player, I remember when um, at the end of my 49er days, uh, Eddie DeBartolo had to step back and there was this time when, you know, there wasn't you know, someone in the office, you know, up upstairs. And I remember Tim McDonald was kind of the defensive captain. The two of us, in our minds, kind of ran the team, right? And we used to go up and sit in the owner's kind of offices because no one was there, and we'd, like, put our feet up and have lunch and, like, act like we were, you know, we knew what we were doing. there's always a dream of players to have a hand in managing that business. And I think that guys like Aaron Rodgers, who have now, agitated for a you know a, I want to be in the room where it happens is healthy. I think it's actually profitable for the team because players know. they know other they know how to scout, they know how to tell you whether someone can play and they can ha- actually help you make that partnership. So I'm in favor of that. The idea that there's 32 you know American royalty that own uh, NFL teams, there's going to be, the values are gotten so astronomical that the trades are going to be so rare, and they're going to be so crazy, you know, that, you know, I had a, I had a crack at it. A good friend of mine, Kevin Compton and I, and with Brent Jones, made a, took a crack at it 20 years ago, and it didn't happen. But those days, I think, are maybe gone. Mm-hmm. Now, can Peyton Manning put together, you know, when someone puts together an equity check of you know, a billion dollars and he throws in 20, you know, or 40 or something, then yeah, I think there's a way to do that. But, um, and be a part of it, maybe even run it. You know, like John Elway has famously done. Um, uh, I think that's possible. But I don't, I think the world of the NFL has gotten too big for, for players to actually own football teams
2: yeah it does have to be fascinating for you on the, from a broader canvas perspective to see how much sports and professional sports and, and even amateur sports have really come to help define the culture it always has to some extent no, But even the I,
3: you said it you said the last the hundred most watched tv shows in 2021 75 of them were the nfl yeah. when you talk about cultural like Media, entertainment, culture dominated by the NFL. Dominated in a way that doesn't look like there's any stopping it. The idea that the NFL is ingrained in, in in the middle of American culture is, it's not ingrained in it, it's dominating it. And so the quarterbacks, who are now more important than ever, are now recognizing that they have this space and place and time and and and, and some are really taking advantage of it. You know, Tom Brady will be one of the great transitions in, in, in sports as he goes on and does whatever he plans to do. He'll use all of that.
2: Whenever that happens.
3: Russell Wilson, you can see that. Russell Wilson will be someone who will be able to transition. and be, be a media mogul of some kind, right? You can, you can see the platforms that weren't there 20 years ago that are happening today for the, the players that are paying attention.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks for listening to this special edition of Bloomberg Business of Sports and my conversation with Steve Young. Check out the entire documentary, the Athlete Empire Steve Young episode on Bloomberg.com or via YouTube. And don't miss the premiere of Athlete Empire. We put that out late last year. It features Alex Rodriguez, a Rod. And coming up next week, Indomitian Sioux. He's the fear defensive tackle and Warren Buffett protege who's building real estate and hospitality empire from his base in Portland, Oregon. I'm Jason Kelly. See you next time.